Jen Harris. And I'm Vanessa Arico, and welcome to another episode of Confessing Animals, a series of conversations with writers and artists and people talking about writing and artists and people. <laughs> <laughs> we really should like pre-record an intro. It's we're we are calling this the fourth season in our second year, and we just <laughs> We need and, to stop winging it. Okay. No, so today like we it. talked to Peter. Charming. It's charming. People like it when we fuck up. Um, we're talking to Peter. It's season four. All about Episode confession. Three. Two? Three. I said two, but it's not It's not right. It's three. Okay, fuck it. Just go into it. I mean, I am. I don't know why you're acting like this isn't our intro. <laughs> Today, we hung out with Reverend Dr. Peter Tremaine. Pastor Pete is a retired Lutheran pastor. He served as a pastor of three congregations for over a span of 40 years. After retirement and the death of his wife, Marianne, he traveled solo outside the U.S. for at least two months a year uh, for the last 10 years. And he's taken only a backpack, stayed in hostels, and walked the 500-mile Camino de Santiago in 2013. He's interested in contemplative spirituality as it transcends the arbitrary boundary between the sacred and secular, nurturing a non-dualistic view of reality. Uh, Peter has a couple of websites. Uh, well, you can check him out on Facebook or Instagram, Peter Tremaine. Uh, but the call to live.wordpress.com is um, that's the blog that he wrote predominantly when he was caretaking his wife and then his travels afterwards. Um, and it's, I mean, I've been working with Peter for years now. I've had the honor of being his friend for years now. And it's, I love his words and I love the way that he brings life to the page. So I'm excited for y'all to hear this interview. I feel like Vanessa, I feel like you talked to Peter way more than I did in this interview. I just kind of sit there with my chin on my hands and listen when Peter talks and you were like, I got questions. So Absolutely. what an interview. I mean, welcome to the church of Peter. That's all I got to say. Absolutely. All right. We're going to get into it. Thank you all for being here. Uh, very excited for you to hear the Reverend Dr. Peter Tremaine. This is the kind of respect confessing animals deserves. You it know, does. this is <laughs> the, I, anybody that ever comes on our podcast from here on, I kiss my ass if you're not this prepared. Like, I don't want you See? here. <laughs> so, well, and I listened to your last one and I was so intrigued by by the repartee, and the, you know, the, the interaction and how one thing fed off another. So I decided not to not to worry much about what I wrote. 
Um, you're already my favorite, uh, Peter, because the this is the level. This is you know how people talk about like love language and like oh mine's acts yeah. of service. Well, like paying the fuck attention is my love <laughs> language. <laughs> and you paid attention. You listened. You were like, oh, this shit's good. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you did your homework. You yeah. showed up. You paid attention. Like, this is what I'm about to get into. Like, just, I love that. Love yeah, it. Yeah. I'm already happy. I'm satisfied. Yeah. This See, is perfect. And, and I'm just excited um, because of the way you two are so spontaneous. And your minds are are divergent from one another and go phenomenal, wonderful, um, unexpected directions. And uh, um, so I've, I've kind of been excited just anticipating where we're going to end up going in this time. I have never had a guest give us homework. <laughs> I think that's what I, I love the most about where, what we're going to talk about today, because you did your homework. You Listen, it is very obvious that you wrote sermons every week for decades because you are prepared. You have the notes and you have the you have like the liturgical notes and then you have the you have the layman notes. See, see if you understand how terrified I am in public situations. Now, this is comfortable, but in public situations um, where there's this group of people, you know, different ones coming on a Sunday, and I am so exposed. Mm. And so um, my, my brother is a retired pastor. I have no idea how he could do it, but he sometimes was still writing that sermon in the morning before church. I had it done the Thursday, three weeks before. <laughs> You're like my mom. She packs for vacation like two weeks in advance because she's so ready for vacation. Yeah. yeah, well, in that regard, I wait until the morning of to put <laughs> stuff in my backpack. I, uh, I don't, I, I feel like the, I do the ahead of time preparation, but all the flavor really shows up on the spot for me. There's no way for oh, me to yeah, plan. Yeah. There's no way for yeah. me to plan yeah. this cheekiness. It's all natural, you know? Well, yeah, even in those sermons, I was, when I was standing there in front of these people, I would, I mean, it was a relationship. And so, um, and, and while I had my notes and I would refer to them, I also had the eyes of these people and I caught what was going, actually, I caught what they were doing sometimes to my dismay when they were being passive aggressive <laughs> and ignoring what I was saying. But, it, but at any rate, I was noticing what was, who was there and what I talked with about one or the other of them. And I've shared with Jen once, I, if I was doing some counseling, there might be a couple sitting together over here. And I looked over there and there was the guy that, that the girl that he was messing around with and she didn't know about it. But I knew about both of them and couldn't talk about Ooh. it. I mean, that was rare. That's but pressure, I, though. But it happened. I mean, that's not a lie. So it, that's it's insight, though. It's true. I mean, I think that, Vanessa, you've experienced this to some degree. I have to believe, like, looking out on an audience and knowing that you know shit about the people in that audience that no one else knows. Yeah. And that, But, Peter, I feel like the pressure of your position to be, like, uh, encouraging them in a direction of morality, almost. Yeah. I yeah. I can just get off well, the stage and have a drink and not think about it again. But yeah, you had, yeah. you were a guiding force. Well, but that's most, a unique position to be in, Peter, because it's like knowing when you you notice people aren't paying attention, then you could say something that you know like would pertain to them to make their ears perk up, right? Like you have the ability to kind of guide. It's that's like power. 
musicians playing to the room. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sometimes they change it up depending on who the audience is. Did, you know, one of, one of the things uh, when some a friend, we, I mean, a, a group and uh, one of the people reads a lot about brain science. One of the things that was a good news, bad news reality <laughs> is that apparently um, when people are listening to someone else speak, what they hear is only 30, contains only 30% of what that person is saying. And the other 70% is what's going on in their mind and originating with them. Now, the negative side is that I spent all that time and energy and they're only listening to a, 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 a tiny part of it. The good news is I don't have so much responsibility on my shoulders. Right, there's less pressure. Like they're not gonna remember no. this anyways. Yeah, they've gotta do, they've gotta do the work. And if they don't, that that tough shit to put it crude. this is, <laughs> this is why i only listen 50 percent of the time you know <laughs> no, no but so, that's okay, our so problem reverend, yeah. oh of course doctor, it is your reverend doctor peter tremaine so what i want to know is what was your official position that we're talking about so the readers can get in on what i already oh, okay um well or the listeners the, listen i don't call my readers listeners i call my <laughs> All right, you too. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead, Peter. Peter, what what was your position that we're referencing before the we get into referencing is that of um, after I trained uh, to be a pastor, I spent the first three years teaching high school and counseling kids uh, baptism of fire, um, and then after that, I was in three different parishes: one for fifteen years in Kansas City, one for nine years in Oklahoma City, and one for 13 years in Topeka, Kansas. And so the setting I'm in is standing, is a church setting where I'm the past, the last 20 years, 23, I was the senior pastor. The, um, so the, well, to put it in, um, I mean, sometimes people use the term CEO to refer to it, but I don't have that kind of authority. There's a, yeah, a board, but whatever. Um, You're the top dog in this I'm, church. Yeah, I was a lead, yeah. And there were other people on the staff too, but yeah. So that's the setting that we're talking okay. about. Okay. And so you, I feel like you, and I, by nature of the position that you found yourself in for this career, you experience, I mean, you experience the full scope of humanity, which is why you're on Confessing Animals today. Yeah, Cause I yeah. want to know the shit you heard. Yeah, I want to oh, talk yeah. about it on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. It, well, absolutely, because the truth is, of course, I was kind of the go-to person uh, when crises happened in people's lives. If it was a, a marriage crisis, a death, uh, an illness, an accident, uh, um, whatever, uh, someone discovering that the, their spouse had been messing around, any of that, I, I was kind of the, not the... Uh, um, the triage territories where they came to first. Um, and, and so I, yes, I, I saw lots of things. It's funny that, that you ask it that way, Jen, because um, I was in a setting just a week ago today, I think, uh, in which I ended up, well, you were at the same place, Jen. Uh, I ended up uh, staying later and a group of people that I had never met before that evening uh, who are friends at the hosts, um, pretty much all were recovering Catholics. And so, so um, we had um, 
the one of the people was kind of um, asked questions without a filter, and he would just you know come at me, and, and he asked just the kind of question um, he, he he kind of wanted to hear all the the good stuff. Now, um, I can't talk about it because I'm not you know you don't know the people, and I'm not using the names. So, uh, but um, the challenge is to remember that stuff. Um, I what he. Uh, wanted to know what's the worst thing somebody had done. We were talking about confession, of all things, the confessional. They brought it up. I mean, I was new. They to were getting them. you ready for this podcast, I, I, man. We I, went I, to a house party I, and Peter rips. <laughs> it was as if I was fresh meat. Um, <laughs> they, they kept asking me all these uh, questions about it, but one, um, one of them wanted to know what was the worst thing that I uh, did. Um, someone had done that I I counseled, and we were talking about counseling the pastoral counseling I did in the, as, as a, a Protestant, or I don't like the term Protestant anyway, a non-Catholic version of confession. Uh, we didn't have a little booth and, and there was nothing between us. It was eye to eye, face to face when we talked and they had initiated it because they wanted some help with something. It wasn't a, a weekly ritual for them. Is it's it not part of the membership? Confession? Is it, uh, is it we no, we have um, an order of confession and absolution for private use in our uh, hymnal, in our book of, of liturgies. Uh, rarely, very rarely is it used. Um, most of um, what actually actually happens is people are struggling with something and they come in and want to talk about it. And so do they? So this denomination in particular has like a, a policy, like a if this, then this for confession, but it's not something that's actively advertised. Yeah, I was wondering, do yeah. they call it just like counseling or is like. Yeah, uh, yeah well, let, let me put it this way. The commitment at ordination made not to reveal what someone says applies to the kind of counseling that I do, just as it does a mm -hmm. psychologist. The, sure. Um, you can't you can't make them talk about it. so um, we would not use the word confession to talk about that. Yes, private confession is its own thing that I you know I've I think only once in all those years that or twice did I have somebody ask to do a formal uh, private confession, and we would go into the front of the church when nobody was there and talk and maybe kneel at the at the communion rail. And uh, they would uh, talk about what it was. And I, you know, had a, an absolution. And that's so interesting to me to think about, like, this, the the root of this word confess or acknowledging. Yeah. We're, we're now passing it off as, like, you know, just someone's, like, yada, yada, whatever talking. Yeah, like, yeah. We're not paying attention anymore. And, like, just the root of words, like, the word gossip used to mean friendship. And now gossip uh -huh. has, like, a negative connotation, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, th this whole, the, I like that you brought in the origin of these yeah, words. Yeah. And, and by the way, one of the, um, one uh, nuance of homologeo, the Greek word for confession, um, is that the, what you are confessing to, and it can mean you are saying what you believe, confessing what you believe, it is never separated from action. Uh, that in action. In other words, you, 
you wouldn't say, oh, I believe this, uh, I confess this, but I don't do it. They don't, you can't separate them. They're not biblically, either Hebrew or Greek, you cannot separate them. What you believe is what you're doing. And uh, it's- Well, it's just, shit. Yeah. Damn, people have been doing this all wrong. This is like the definition of hypocrisy right here. I know, yeah. This definition's got me fucked up. (laughs) Oddly, this very conversation came up on Friday morning, last Friday morning in my spiritual formation group, spontaneously, having I hadn't mentioned uh, this at all. But um, the way we were discussing it was the uh, 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 church's... uh, Particularly Roman, Roman Catholic, and I was going to say even Gaelish, that's German, evangelical, whatever, uh, non, non Catholic. The, the conflict between, um, works righteousness, earning one's way to heaven and grace, the relationship as gift. And we, and so we were discussing this and again, came to the understanding or, or spoke about the reality that you can't separate them. You just can't separate them. Yes, it's the hypocrisy. It makes no sense. It's just, it's a lie. It isn't, it makes no sense. It, at least biblically, in terms of right. the biblical narrative. We just had Ash Wednesday, right? Wasn't that last yes. Wednesday? It was. So um, you bring up the word grace, and this is something that I, I learned from your notes as well. So, kind of confession on you brought in the the ash wednesday so you yeah, are yeah. dust and right. to dust yeah. you shall return and then there's really interesting thing like um dirt and human oh, oh this and, is oh and, that's not geez, i love that and bringing like the yeah. the breath breathing the breath into yeah. the dirt and then so it's like grace is breath and it's like giving it's, people it, the breath or the room or the grit. Like, yeah, I, I loved this. It's it's the convergence of it. And one of the things um, uh, I need to uh, confess is that my take on that is, is uh, biblical in terms of the biblical theology, but church doctrine often treats, uh, and historically in the Middle Ages in particular, when Lent was extended, um, it, it um, Ash Wednesday was about, Penance and do you know uh, doing uh, feeling terrible about what you did wrong and doing things to correct it or, or whatever to pay for it, but that's actually not nothing associated with the biblical literature. Um, can Ash Wednesday is a is a from from my perspective and I it's legit in terms of the biblical literature using different language my language and that is that uh, it is drilling down to the absolute existential core of who, when I do it, who I am. Um, sh- shedding all the descriptors, the other, anything else. It's just drilling down to the thing that only exists because of your breath, your existence. And, and, and the rest is all gone. And, and that is, you have that in common with everyone else because everyone is made, is made in an evolutionary way of dirt and water. I mean, what, 70% water, 60, 70% water. Um, the rest is, if you, you put it down in a little pile, you'd have a, a bucket of water and, and a pile of dirt. And so the, um, the best understanding of my value as a human 
is that someone or something has decided that this particular bunch of water and dirt looks like this and has self-awareness and is a somebody. And, and the, the craziness that that should actually be so. And even if you do this, uh, look at this from um, in a scientific, the physicists and the, uh, all, even if, if you look at from that, when I read um, things by Hawking and uh, Stephen Hawking's and, and um, well, what's his name? Harris, Sam Harris, all the people who talk about all of that thing, the utter miracle that this should have happened that the matter and energy and that whatever else exists in between that, the matter and energy, I, which is a, I, with which I'm fascinated. Um, anyway, that um, all, there is a, is a someone or a something that wants me to exist. And I, I had the best experience uh, of that uh, a few decades ago, sitting out in the country at a, a prayer center, whatever it was, 500 acre farm, sitting at with my back against a giant round bale of hay. Could, you know, I could look, I could see where kind of, uh, I, I was, I was by myself, I look, see for miles. And I remember just having this wonderful thing wash over me. I was reading something uh, that triggered it. I, why, why am I here? I am actually here. Someone or something wants me to exist. And it was so remarkable. It seemed it, it just shed all my self-doubts and all the crap that I live with minute by minute every day from the time I get up, wake up. Um, but I, the, my value comes externally. I didn't, I didn't make myself, I, I didn't create myself. I didn't get myself born. You know, I can't, I didn't make the semen and the egg and the whatever and pull them together to make myself. I, um, so it is pure gift, and that and the word grace are the same word, gift and grace. And you say also from a purely physics standpoint, that big bang is yeah. that same idea of that exactly. initial grace. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, I'm in a, in my mind, I'm just, I love this conversation with you because it, it never ceases to amaze me. It truly is. So are you telling me what I want to figure out is when we look at Ash Wednesday, did you say it's not part of like biblical language? Like is Ash Wednesday, like a church derived. Oh, no, no. Uh, it's a holiday. Well, it's, it's rooted in um, sitting in uh, dust and ashes in the even old Testament literature. Uh, that was a symbol of penance of, okay. of uh, I'm sorry. I, you know, um, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm not okay in some ways, and and it's facing up to that. It would be wild if I showed up at either one of your doorsteps, like covered in dirt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I see. Be like, I just wanted to tell it's, you really sorry about earlier. Yeah, <laughs> it's sackcloth and ashes. That's the image in the Old Testament. That's oh, the, I love this. I mean, like literally, we're just a bag of water and a pile of dirt, and someone breathed life into us. Exactly. It's like no matter how you want to look at it, like at the very core, exactly. this is what we all are walking around. Like, no. and it blows my mind that like there, this, that so much radical hate and anger can arise from a pile of dirt and a bag of water. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. 
And and by the way, when I did this, um, I uh, had a, a favorite children's message I would do, uh, in which I uh, the kiddos would be gathered around. I'd have a I'd have a jar of water and a jar of dirt, and then I'd have this beautiful blooming plant flower, and and we would just walk through um, that that the plant came from the dirt and the water. And they know about dirt and water and plants and watering plants that that came together and made this beautiful flower. So just in, in reaction to what's actually happened with our ugliness, <laughs> it doesn't have to be that way. Right, also, imagine like what plant, we could grow. Yeah, A plant doesn't have to confess like this, this notion of like, okay, there's so many directions I want to go yeah. right now. Yeah. I'm, try, I'm trying to shake it out. Shake it out, yeah. bro. Do it. I'm, Do it. I'm, I'm trying to like pull a couple of things together because, you know, we ta- you mentioned confession kind of opens a space for us to choose a new direction. Yeah. And I love that because it's not about um, I feel guilty. I've done something wrong. Like now I have to punish myself. It's it's the acknowledgement and opening in the space to move in a new direction. Right. Mm-hmm. But there, there's so much guilt that is associated yeah, yeah. with confession. And it's like the so much does punishment not feel, and punishment. But like yeah. nothing else feels guilty. Like what are we feeling guilty for? Like because you had brought in. I mean, this is a big leap, but yeah you were taking care of your wife towards the end of her life and Mm -hmm. you started this writing process, writing down what happened during the day and Mm -hmm. as your experience as a caregiver. And, Mm -hmm. and you kind of talked about like confessing kind of like to frame your feelings and to help other caregivers. So they didn't feel alone in their feelings. But like, to me, you cannot fail as a caregiver unless you just choose to show up not to care, right? So it's like, I don't understand this notion of like feeling like you failed. I mean, it's such a human thing unless we all should be walking around yeah. saying, I'm sorry every okay. minute for being alive. I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to try to break an illusion. Um, I, did, I did caregiving and I did it I was immersed in it and I did it and I, I feel wonderful about the person I, I was in, in the act of doing that. I was grumpy and I yelled and I got mad and I, I, every once in a while, I, I finally say, Marianne, I can't take this. And I walk out the door because she was doing something that created harm for herself and put her at risk, which scared the crap out of me. And then it made me angry because it was impacting me. And she didn't even think about that. Well, she had Parkinson's and everything was working slowly and it, was, it wasn't her fault, but some of the stuff she did is just, just was a, a part of her personality and she wasn't perfect. So sometimes she was being self, self-willed and you know, whatever. And, uh, and it seemed not to give a shit for, for what was going on. Well, all of that is a reality also in the midst of that. Now, I gratefully, the frontal lobe stayed active and I would be angry and scream and whatever. And then I'd, I'd stop and I wouldn't hurt her. I wouldn't do anything to harm her. I couldn't bring, do anything to harm her. But it, it was what, what I was filled with was not pretty. 
And that's the part it helps I needed to say enough to reflect that part of the experience so that some poor schluck out there who has taken care of her husband or uh, whatever and, and wanted to beat the crap out of him didn't feel as if, oh, oh this, this, this blogger is so pure and so wonderful. I wanted them to be able to identify with the reality because then I could, then they could hear the part about, I remember discovering how important my job was when I was cleaning the crap up and the, and all the stuff that was, you know, de- dealing with what went into her and what came out of her. And I, Yes. And I think you're giving grace in that moment, too, in terms of like, just because a person is sick, like doesn't take away their humanity. They still have good days and bad days and they're still assholes and they're still yeah. the love of your life and, and everything is still happening. So to paint it only as, um, well, she's sick and dying, so I therefore cannot have like normal reactions to her, you know, is is, is bullshit, right? So yes. it's like being honest, I think, is, is mm-hmm. part of giving that breath and that grace to allow her to still be a full human, and you're still going to be a full human exactly. in reaction. And if if I had treated her as an oh poor, poor Mary Ann, she would have projectile vomited right on my face. <laughs> she, <laughs> she would have hated would not, you. She would not. She was never needy. Now that's. That, that not everybody is like that. You know, some care receivers are horribly difficult to do. Hers was difficult because of her willfulness, but she was never, never poor, poor me. Uh, there weren't a lot of tears and what, whatever. And so I, th- this is my rationalization for showing my anger sometimes is I gave her the dignity of being angry at her. I ne- she was, I was never, we were always husband and wife with all the crap that comes with it. It's wild to hear. It's wild to hear you say that to, um, to not be patronizing was the most respectful and dignified thing, but I know it's true. You know, nobody wants to be treated like a pet and that's the, the great tragedy of, I mean, even in my own experience now, being in a relationship with someone who has a child who has special needs and having to adapt my entire human experience in all the ways that I, I don't know. It's not that my normal changed, but not for the negative. I have to be Mm -hmm. so much more self-aware and I'm so much more self-aware. I'm so much more aware that this person with, with special needs does not in any way lack the full spectrum of basic human needs. You know, there's just, I have an awareness now that we all genuinely need the same things. We all feel the same feelings on some level. I don't think I really knew that before this experience. I assumed that everybody kind of had a different set of feelings and it, it, you know, I don't know. It just, it turns out that there's like a level playing field in that regard. And I never considered that before. And it is different depending on the relationship with the person. Um, In Mary, in my case and Mary Ann's, um, functionally, I was, I was her body. I was, I, um, I uh, uh, trans- lifted her and moved her into the um, chair, uh, transfer chair and whatever. I would do whatever things um, when she was most very dyskinetic and couldn't 
do stuff. Um, and I, whatever she did, I partnered in the doing of it and was mm-hmm. the physical uh, element in the, in that picture. And I, um, so I, I, I uh, it, in terms of the, that experience, um, my, in my career as a pastor of a place for 40 years, I made this much difference in the lives of hundreds, thousands of people at one time or another over those 40 years. After I retired and was with Marianne full time, I made this much difference in one person's life. And that, from my perspective now looking back, was more important beyond measure. That's so important. And it kind of tying it back to you said confession like can't be separate from action. Yeah. Um, I mean, wow. I mean, talk about it being put in action like that. And it reminds me, so my favorite, one of my favorite philosophers, Simone Weil, um, French philosopher, she says something I'm badly paraphrasing, like there, one should, there should not be uh, any discrimination or not discrimination. There shouldn't be a separation between like one's beliefs and one's actions, right? So it's like, I struggled with that because it's like, I'm really morally opposed to doing XYZ because of capitalism, but then I have this job over here where I'm having to do XYZ to fuel this system, right? So it's like, and it's like your beliefs and your actions should not be different. And then confession is not separate from that action. Yeah. I, I know this isn't a question. I'm just like yeah, yeah, yeah. thinking. I, all right. She's working um, it out on you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and here, here's, here's the, for me, the crux of confession and its, its purpose. Um, confession is recognizing the distance between what you believe and what you're doing. The person you wish you were and the person you are. And that, and frankly, I thought it was brilliant when I, that I, I sort of caught sight of this thing that the person I want to be and the person I really am at, the, at my best and my worst, my goal is for them to have sex and to create and to birth the person I, my identity, not denying either one. And I have to be aware of the ugliness and admit to it to be able to function. I have to admit to the racism in me to not act in racist ways. If I pretend it's not there or deny it or don't see it, it happens without me even knowing it. Thinking about exactly. It. I mean, this is the true meaning of like create your own reality is, yeah. is being aware and being present. And you say confession opens us up to be present, right? So it's like if I'm yep. confessing these unconscious bias I have or whatever in order to marry those two like who I want to be versus who I'm actually being at this moment to birth the person who I really want to be like we must you know be awake in this Mm -hmm. present moment to even get there yeah I'm just my I'm I'm my hair's blown back (laughs) y'all you know (laughs) I I just I feel very struck by the way it uh, it is it's very cylindrical 
it's all intertwined. You know what I mean? There is no, there is no separation in any of these subjects. And I think it's, it's interesting that we kind of came at this from, I mean, both your educational and your career background when, you know, when I also know that I'm looking through your, your notes regarding secular usage and, I think Vanessa dived into it with discussing how you've cared for Marianne, but the many ways in which confession overlaps in every arena, mm-hmm. you know, that there is no, there's no location in our lives where it's not required or demanded of us. And I, I just didn't think about it like that mm-hmm. until you. Well, it's, it, it's the only way that um, reality can exist because reality includes both sides of whatever. And until they uh, come together, it's just some, some artificial uh, mask or uh, whatever it is. Um, Can I share a stoner moment with you guys? Please. <laughs> Go for it. Please. Okay. Um, So once upon a time, I was living in New York City, and I left New York City, and then I go back home to North Carolina where my parents are living to kind of like regroup as I frequently did, and I met somebody else who was in the same position who had just left New York City and went back to his parents' house. Anyways, we get together. We spend a year like basically getting stoned and hanging out in his parents' hot tub, Um, and one night... uh, being stoned in the hot tub and I'm looking up at the sky and I was like, oh my gosh, Adam and Eve, Adam and evolution. So Adam, the name Adam, A-D-A-M and then Atom, A-T-O-M and then Eve as an evolution. So I created this whole thing in my mind about how Adam's and evolution are like the whole that's the adam and eve that's the secular adam and eve right like it's not about like the adam and eve of the bible it's about atoms because we're all just made up of matter and space or matter and evolution so i've had this whole thing that i've carried with me about adam a-t-o-m and eve as evolution well um you understand that you're you're not anywhere different from the story in that regard. Um, and, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, Adam, the, the word, is earth. What's earth made of? It's matter, molecules, and atoms. That's, that's what it is. And I'm trying to remember, I should have looked that up. Uh, 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 Eve is, I think, Isha, Asha, something like that. And it's, source of, it's, it's a life, source of life or orient. Kind of th- oriented kind of thing. So the story itself, you're you intuitively move those words to say what they say, really, right? Which makes original sense meaning. to me, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, and that's what's so beautiful because it's like until I read your notes today about the dirt and the atom, I was like, oh, well, that's the conclusion I came to, and I just didn't use the biblical terminology. But it's like it's it's essentially saying the same yeah, yeah. thing. You know, see, and, and the thing for me that is um, always a challenge, and I have to um, be careful who I talk about in that way about this, but um, the biblical literature is, is just one take on reality. 
and it is not the be all and end all, we can intuitively, if the theological word that I could use to justify this from a uh, biblical perspective is that, that we understand, biblical doctrine understands us to have, Lutheran doctrine that, and Catholic, natural knowledge of God. Well, I can, I can rest it there. In Celtic spirituality, this, is, this card is played, the Celts and the, and the Druids kind of interacting. But, uh, and one theologian, uh, Pelagius and St. Francis, buy into the reality, created the creation, reality, as an equal source of communication from God to any written material, the Bible in particular. So what you experience is as authentic as reading words in the Bible that said this or, or whatever. Um, it, and I don't see the Bible as the source, also, sole source of truth. It's So you're, I want to I summarize this in, in this way of, what you're saying is that the the experience one has within nature mm-hmm. it, and the holiness of that experience in all the ways that if you've ever taken a beautiful walk or a hike or anything like that. So the beauty that one experiences in nature is e- of equal value to biblical literature as far as experiencing God goes. And discovering things about God, which means mm-hmm. scientific study. Yes. Mm-hmm. An equal source. And, uh, and for me, that means not ever taking some doctrinal or biblical or whatever um, perspective and squeeze and manipulate discoveries, scientific discoveries or whatever, into matching that. That assumes that some who something else made all of it, if you believe in God, um, it the thing, the reality, the physical reality, all that scientific study is revelatory of whoever or whatever God is. And so it's searching. That's a place, a legitimate place to go. Stephen Hawking's is, is a devotional material for me. Mm, absolutely. And I also, I, I want you to tell us about this Rothko painting. Oh, oh, that was so, I, you know, I've been thinking about that and thinking about that. Um, it is exactly true, but I, I used to go, Marianne and I would go to the Nelson, that painting would be hanging there in the block building. And I, you know, it was among those at first that I thought, oh, geez, you know, what's the, how, how, how did my three-year-old could do this, you know, whatever. Um, and, yes, I've had that uh, thought so many times. Yeah, 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 oh, my yeah, yeah. God. Wait, let's, let's paint the picture. So the Nelson is this All big right, the art Nelson, gallery yes. here. It's the museum here in Kansas City. Uh, yes, and this is a modern art section, and, and Rothko, whatever his first name is, I've forgotten. Theodore. Theodore, is it really? No. I think so. <laughs> Seriously. Okay, Rothko. Um He's a, he's a abstract painter. The painting is, um, oh, shoot, what is it? Four feet by four feet, I think, or, or six feet. I don't know. It's huge. Uh, and it is all black. You can see a faint, perfectly geometric square inside the frame that kind of is near the edge there. And it's another shade. I don't know. I I'm not sure if it's a deep purple or whatever it is. It's something barely distinguishable. And that's all there is. Essentially, it's a giant black square. 
Mark I, Rothko. Mark, Mark Rothko painted a go. giant black square. Yep. And I walked by that thing. I walked by that. And, and then, uh, you know, for years, since 1972, I've been interested in, uh, in, in uh, contemplative spirituality. And um, so I, I, you know, I read stuff and I meet with people and we, you know, have silent times and whatever we do. Uh, and then my spiritual formation group, uh, the Beats Weekly. So that's the backdrop. Once I, I walked in there, and I think it was after Marianne died, and so I took more time because um, I whatever. So I stood in front of that painting, and I looked at it, and it, it is as if it had um, some kind of magical power because it drew me in, and and I had this aha experience. That is precisely where I've been trying to get in all the contemplative, everybody who writes about it, that's where I'm being led because it is in that nothingness with all in, in, in terms of us um, contemplative and mindfulness, that, that emptiness is what's left after you've the thoughts and the stream and all the stuff that's going through the monkey brain, the whatever, all that stuff. Sam Harris would be a chief proponent of this. I don't always agree with him, but at any rate, um, until there's absolutely nothing left. And that nothing is the very something that is who I am. It is my existence. It has, I mean, coming to terms with it, I remember um, at, at one point when I was early in the seminary years and I, I went through this crisis and I you know, didn't believe anything. And then afterwards I said, okay, and I, I believed I would think about the mayfly. Mayflies live for less than 24 hours and they come out by the billions and they lay eggs and reproduce and die. That, that's their, their sole purpose. And I remember always struggling with that and using that, that, well, that's what's different about um, God's message. Well, the truth is that is as valid an existence. They exist. And yes, they want to continue to exist. We are. Our, our existence, we, we just want to, we want to reproduce. So we, um, the, uh, we want to maintain existence, but it is the existence that is what actually has value, whatever the source of it, the fact that we exist, that we inhale and exhale is what gives us our value. What is in everything else, all the thoughts and all those wanderings are context. And so I value them. I value them. I, I, feel as if I do more than Sam Harris does. That's the part where that's where I argue with him um, is that I, the thoughts, the thoughts are connected to all the chemistry of my body and all the experiences that I've had in the past. And they trigger all of that. Well, that is all present in this moment of consciousness. And so it, it's okay for it to exist, but I am, I like the part where I might have the ability to let go of all of that for a moment and still be okay and have value. Because 
some of my context is not not pretty. Get your worthiness here, folks. I <laughs> shit, Peter. I think you just solved all the world's goddamn problems in one conversation. Sure. Well, it it just makes me happy as like a lover of art and like that you came to that moment and and it talks a lot about you know um, first impressions or you know like you know we all walk by that shit and go whatever this is shit this is yeah. this could you know what I mean whether it's a person whether it's a painting whether it's something we read and. But it's and, experience and it also, right? It, uh, profound grief and awareness draws you draws you into something in ways that you could not have been accessible to before. Right. I was going to say that you were in a space, whether it's you know the loss of a love and whatever, you were opened up in a way that you were able to perceive in a way that you had not been before, whether it yeah. was not just paying attention, whatever it was. And I loved that your door was open and, and that is what you saw in it. And you mentioned like, you kind of brought in um, the writing aspect, you know, like you said, it reminded you even as a writer, like words are only clusters of letters that serve as these tiny paintings or something, you know? Yeah, and yeah. it made me think of one of my favorite paintings at the Nelson Atkins by Franz Klein. It's also in the modern section and it's just like, big black strokes that look you know all on the white canvas and mm -hmm. it, and it reminded it reminds me of like as if, if you were going to zoom in really close to letters on a page and it looks very abstract and you're just seeing these lines and yeah. and the and exactly and and it doesn't matter if you can't read what's on that page right there's something inherently valuable just like in those strokes whether it's the writing or the painting or even if that whole page that you you smeared that paragraph together you have this paragraph of of written copy and then you just smeared it all together and now it's Rothko's black box right yeah, like it's exactly. all still there exactly well and i have to this this conversation also is is uh is interesting in that i have just in, well, today I looked at it and yesterday I had a little interaction um, triggered by um, one of the things that comes across Facebook about U Ukraine. Uh, and it was the Ukrainian national anthem, uh, the music, and two people doing deaf sign language. To it, so it was a communicating. Well, and then there was a little interaction by some people in response. One is a, a person who was deaf uh, in the, my congregation in Topeka, who's just the coolest person in her family, and, and whatever. And uh, she also says some of the posts some of the funniest memes. But at any rate, so, um, she's just super cool. And um, the deaf community is really many of them are adamant about not trying to get the hearing back, but learn sign language and, and be able to communicate with that. And uh, another person that I know, um, that's too long a story. Anyway, she um, made the observation that her daughter was learning uh, a sign language that makes letters rather than the language like ASL. And, and there's a conflict in the community about that. Well, where that comes strikes me in terms of writing is that words are, yes, they are just symbols. They're just little signs. They, they, you know, because of course, uh, learning other languages, there, there aren't matching words in every language to each other words. They simply point to a reality that frankly, one culture might not really recognize. 
and another one does. But they're only little points that uh, indicate a direction. Well, in a, what I, I love about a sign language, I don't know it, I, whatever, but what I love about it is that it, it communicates not the words, does not communicate the words. It, uh, only when they do the finger thing with a, a name or something. It communicates other things, uh, what's behind the words. And I, I would love to talk more with somebody uh, uh, to, to get the sense of that. But what that confirms for me is that, that words are, are, are wonderful, but they are not the whole communication. I mean, when they're beautifully put together. And by the way, there are spaces between them to give, like poetry, to give a chance to learn. But um, I, I use the word, um, and I use this with, with her, and she didn't respond, but sign, American Sign Language is like a dance communicating a message. What the words point to, that dance points to, and it's, it's visceral as well. It's not strictly auditory or strictly uh, looking at it. it it's, um, so I, I, it just, um, as a writer, that really, well, I, no, I, you know, Jen, I can yes, hardly say are. that. I said yes, that. I, I can't say that. Yes, I can't. you are. That, that, you that, said I, it. I, I can't, you I said it, and I'm proud of Yeah. I don't know why, but it, I'm, my hair is standing up on the thing. I'm straightening <laughs> up now just at the thought of that, saying that because of, well, being around you people. But anyway. Peter, but, you have way more experience writing than we do. And... And, and, and again, that those spaces in between the letters, in between the words, in between our conversations, in the pauses, that's all the grace, that's all the dirt, it's all the breath, it's all, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's everything that's happening between us, even though we're in this weird simulation virtuality, and, and, and <laughs> yeah. we're not actually breathing on each other right now, right. but um, we're still here in breath together. Yeah, yeah, and I, um, now this gets a little weird, but my... Um, I, I'm intrigued by the idea that let's, if there is a God, that the God exists in the spaces between the pro protons and electrons and the molecules in the dark. God is in the dark matter and dark energy. Um, so the, we just, po we poke with the words, but that's what holds it all together. And in the biblical terms, the term word logos, which is in the, in the gospel of John, the word became flesh uh, idea. Um, I, I use the comparison with confirmation kids that the word, that understanding of the word philosophically at the time it was used is like the force. It's that which holds everything together. And so when I'm thinking about either God or some sentience in the universe. That's how I understand it or think about it. Mm -hmm. um, is, and by the way, one of the, one of the things that I, uh, I, I like not having answers. I love not having, I don't want answers. That's just, they're worthless. They, they end, end all discovery. Um, but um, uh, what, what I, um, love is the question about God's existence that I don't have to answer. Um, and I like 
not having to answer that question. That's why I balk if what Jen, when you use the word uh, agnostic, mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm not wasting my time. A is against. That's the Greek term for against. I, I'm not. It's a waste of time. I'm not against stuff. I'm for stuff, and I'm for maintaining this mysterious dimension of of reality. And I don't want to be in control of it. I don't want to. Uh, you know, I. I'm sorry, Mercury may be in retrograde, but I don't want to. Ma- I, I want. I'm still. <laughs> Peter, I can't control what the planets are doing. <laughs> I can't control what the planets are doing. Yeah, yeah. I, I love. This is a. I think this is a remarkable. Uh, symbolism of this kind of surrender of ego, though. You don't want to be in charge. You don't need to know. You're not in control. And you're the you <laughs> you're the antithesis of the modern generation in that way that you don't need the labels. Yeah. You don't need the identity. Um, you don't need this to formulate an identity for you. Like the pastor just said, if God exists, I mean, yeah. that in it, that's in that statement in itself is where your brilliance lies, Peter. Yeah. I mean, to be a pastor for 40 years, to do all this study and to still be able to say, if God exists, yeah. you're not preaching. Uh, that's one what it's way supposed to be. Experience. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah and I understand that has, that has emerged. I mean, it came up and then it kind of drifted back and then and now it now it's on full now that I've I've retired. Not not worrying about the question of whether there is a God or not, but that that if there is, that's where that God is. And um, really, my my way of framing when I'm talking to people about it to try to kind of uh, ease into it, particularly with people who are very strong in their belief in God, is that I here's the deal. Um, I this 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 brain is I don't even know what is it three pounds five I don't know whatever it is. I live on this little teeny, tiny blue dot that is not even visible in most of the universe. And so here, uh, I'm expected to answer the question, is there a God or is there not a God? And my contention is that first, that's, that question is far above my pay grade to answer. And what madness would it be? What madness would it be to think that such a, a magnificent reality must fit inside the little, you know, logic and whatever synapses in in this thing? How how, how could that be possible? I, and I, I routinely say with people, so I can kind of get away with transitioning into it, that if if I could understand God, I wouldn't believe in God. And now, now I just, you know, I'm, <laughs> but, but it's whatever God is or isn't, I, I don't have to understand it to be okay. 